Hello, my name is Dustin Kluwer, and I'm here today with Will Sloan, and you're listening to the Import Cinema Club, and today is our month of challenging ourselves. That's right. This month, we are the International Cinema Club. <laughs> That's right. We are traveling- Talking about Poverty Row. <laughs> uh, no, no, not what? at all. We're traveling around the world. We're going to countries that we've never visited before, and we're hoping to expand both your and our horizons. That's right. And first we begin <laughs> in the former Czechoslovakia, but now the Czech Republic. I like how we say, like, expand our horizons, as if we're not talking about filmmakers that, like, oh, they're pretty big kind of art sensations, aren't they? I guess, but even but even they... Yeah, you know. I mean, we're talking this week about uh, Jan Schwankmeier. Had you never seen any of his movies before? I had seen... His shorts. Ah. Okay. Of one of his movies, which we're going to be talking about. Mm-hmm. And in fact, why am I burying the lead? I'll just say what the movie is. <laughs> Jan Schwankmeier is probably best known for his 1988 film, Alice. Mm-hmm. A very strange, surreal, uh, half live action, half animation, uh, what's it? based upon Alice in Wonderland. Uh, Watching the movie again for this episode reminded me that I once wrote an essay for university class about Alice in Wonderland and I like compared it to the Jan Schwankmeyer film and like included a DVD like with the essay trying to butter up the teacher to give me a higher grade. Did not work, but she was very appreciative because she had never heard of this version of the movie. Nice, glad she got something like that. (laughs) Which was a very loose adaptation of the uh, original work. I mean, the film, I think in its original language, the title translates to something about Alice, just to let you know that, like, no, this is not an actual retelling of, um, is it Through the Looking Glass or uh, Adventures in Wonderland is the first one? Uh, don't ask me. I'm not a huge Lewis Carroll expert. <laughs> okay. But Jan Schwenkmeier, probably one of the best known Czech directors, certainly uh, one of the best known Czech animators. Mm, or, surrealist. Or is he a puppeteer, really? Imagine, imagine... Uh, <laughs> Are we going to get into the semantics of what is stop motion? What is puppeteering? What is the real art, Scorsese? Can we get you on the line? I guess you could say he makes, well, not family films, but... No, definitely not. Family-adjacent films. M- movies movies for the dark and twisted child in your family. Mm. Imagine if Tim Burton had stayed good and in, fact, <laughs> and, in fact, had matured and gone in strange and difficult and uncompromising directions. Imagine if Tim Burton had turned into Louis Bunuel. Yeah, I mean... The thing about Jan Schwankmeier is that he's always considered himself a surrealist. He works in all the um, artistic forms. Like, he does a lot of, like, exhibitions and just sculptures. But he's most famously known as a director for his use, like Will said, of stop motion. Mm-hmm. Um, stop motion specifically in Alice, in Faust, is actually more puppeteering. But in his short film work, the ones that are the ones that people know are all stop motion animated films. So, his origin story, we both watched a documentary about him mm-hmm. featuring interviews with him and he's quite articulate about his life and work and creative process it all began when he was nine years old and he got a puppet theater from his dad for christmas Uh, he was a reclusive introverted child and he loved creating worlds one imagines nightmarish worlds (laughs) yes uh, in that little in that little puppet theater he studied theater in school and was very interested in avant-garde genre bending theater when you look at his influences there are a couple of key ones there's bunuel yeah 100 percent. he likes to say that like bunuel well as one of the film directors that he loves and the other ones he could take or leave but there was also uh, a czech animator by the name of and i'm not going to pronounce <laughs> no you right, are not but it is jiri turncat that, <laughs> yep. that's t-r-n-k-a mm-hmm. not well known in uh in north america but his 1947 film the czech year was one of the pioneering czech animated films and it was 
not a traditional animation. It was this weird puppet animation, which was the forerunner of what was called the Czech School. And so Jan Schwankmeyer, he started in short films. And the short films that he made that kind of grabbed international attention were ones that were like very out there, often presenting something that has a basis that's understandable and then pushing it in the most absurd directions. One of his most famous uh, shorts is one where a bunch of body parts get trapped in a room. I don't know if you've seen this one. It starts with like eyes and then turns into hands and they keep opening doorways and attaching themselves to each other. And there's like an internal logic that they're trying to make a perfect body until finally they succeed in doing it. And the giant man is trapped in this tiny room. There was a movement at the time in the 1950s and 1960s in Czechoslovakia to create a new sort of animation that would draw on theater techniques from the avant-garde theater to save on the costly process of animation Mm. so they could have like animation without animation. Well, I mean, Schrankmeyer's films do have a lot of animation in them, even though that it doesn't have the smoothness of something that you'd associate with Ray Harryhausen. But like his first short, The Last Trick, uh, was using this thing called black theater technique, which is still used fairly often where it's, you know, puppets and uh, people in strange costumes and props in front of a stark black backdrop. And even in that short, you can see that like he was using rapid fire editing to tell his story, to give it a different dimension than if he was just doing it on stage. And you mentioned that there's a there's a reality to his work uh, or, or a sense of realism. That is, I think, the very interesting tension in his work where he is a surrealist. Uh, his work is wildly imaginative, but he's also in love with uh, textures. Uh, he he loves things that are coarse and slimy and well. He uh, loves gross. kind of recreating everyday things, but then pushing them into absurd or even obscene directions. A lot of his short films have to do with like eating, and like one of his other famous short films is like people eating themselves until there's nothing left. Mm -hmm. So everything in his movies has a strong sense of weight and texture. And he's interested, uh, as he said in an interview, in found objects, not in props. So in his film Alice, it's set in what looks like an old house or a dirty basement, a a dirty basement. (laughs) And it's like using all the objects you would find in a dirty basement. Like he wants to find the poetry and the strangeness in the everyday. But the objects are also always like twisted in a dangerous way. Like there's rusty nails sticking out of them, or it looks like it could hurt you if you get too close. I should point out as well that probably where people have seen the short films is the one where it's two pieces of meat having sex called meat love. And that is a thing that he goes back to over and over again. Just, I mentioned that he loves eating. He loves food moving and acting in the way that like living things do because there's that tension of like, no, this is dead. It is not supposed to have these kind of human or even just living attributes to them. And that it makes me very uncomfortable. There's this uncanny feeling watching his movies. There's a tension between the real and unreal. What Mm. we're seeing is so strange and unreal, but the objects have weight and they are objects we're familiar with. It's, you know, chairs and nails and socks and uh, stuffed animals. Yeah, but they're just not moving the right way. I should point out that, like, his stop motion animation, especially in something like Alice, where... 
he's dealing with like specific characters they do have that extra special touch where he's not just animating it for it to feel weird mm -hmm. everything is moving like it was actually alive it has little ticks mm -hmm. like there's a scene where the doll Alice like falls in water and she like moves her hair away from her face so she can actually see or like uh, the rabbit that runs around which is horrifying in the film I mean we should just set up Alice which is you know the classic Alice in Wonderland set up. It's a little girl. She's kind of bored. She goes on an adventure. But and it's what, a real little girl. Yeah, it's a real little girl. What sets off that adventure? It's a stuffed rabbit that pries itself from the nail where it's um, pinned in a glass case and then runs off to, you know, it's late, it's late but this rabbit is constantly its stomach is cut open so it's like leaking sawdust which it then eats. <laughs> and it has to constantly sew up its own stomach. <laughs> yeah. Like it picks up a little safety pin yeah. and just very nonchalantly so up his little stomach and imagine watching it that it is a stuffed rabbit mm -hmm. maybe like any stuffed rabbit you could find like its eyes are dead. bugged out yeah you know it, it just like it, it just has the eyes and face of a stuffed rabbit so its face is not that expressive mm -hmm. but its body language is very expressive it communicates a lot in the way it moves it keeps reaching into its stomach to pull out a little stopwatch which it looks at the time and then licks the stopwatch and uh Schrankmeyer loves the loud sound effects so you hear like yeah as it eats the sawdust. And he, you can feel that, you know, he's a surrealist, but the way that he makes these things as disturbing as they are is they have their own kind of, like, limited logic to it. Like, yeah. the, the rabbit eats the sawdust that comes out of its stomach, so later on, Alice finds that the rabbit has, like, a meal of sawdust ready to go <laughs> and eat. <laughs> and I also love that these little creatures, which, you know, are like stuffed animals mm -hmm. or wooden dolls, things like that, to the extent that they can be, they are quite eccentric and they're quite ornery mm -hmm. like they're not fun they don't want to be your friend yeah they don't want to be your friend they're yeah. difficult yeah. and you are an obstacle alice is an obstacle to these creatures so there's one moment when alice is like looking into a little door basically of like a dollhouse mm -hmm. and the rabbit doesn't want her to look so he starts throwing yeah right. <laughs> he starts throwing plates there's another scene where uh was it the rabbit or another creature who just starts throwing rocks at alice i don't remember everybody down. hates alice so much in this movie because she she is a force that she's introducing herself in this environment <laughs> where like she doesn't need to be there there's nothing for her and it follows I mean I haven't read Alice in Wonderland in ages but it's like the general template of the story like she does cry herself out of a room mm -hmm. she does take disgusting liquid to grow big and grow small mm -hmm. the entire time and she in the, this movie goes freely by the way between being a real little girl and a doll yes like a porcelain doll horrifying looking doll <laughs> and the movie doesn't really draw a distinction between those two states. No, but the film we should point out is also all from the perspective of the little girl herself, which I think is very interesting mm -hmm. in that, like, there is no dialogue other than what is spoken by her. So when a character speaks, you actually hear a little girl's voice saying, and then the rabbit said, I'm late, I'm late. And then they cut to a pair of lips of the little girl talking, which I found out is not the actor's lips. It's uh, Schrankmeyer wanted very specific looking lips of a little girl. Okay. So he cast somebody else. So it's almost like somebody else is telling this story right. about a little girl. Alice herself doesn't talk within no. the diegesis. No, the only time you ever hear like dialogue are those lips talking mm. in a cutaway that is 
it, it is not within the context of the movie. I think this also speaks to something else I like about Schweinkmeier, which is that he is so unsentimental about childhood. Mm-hmm. Well, she's mean in this movie, yeah. too. Like, as the movie plays out, like, she's sometimes mean-spirited in the way that she treats the animals. Like, they're angry, mm-hmm. but she almost takes fun in kind of, not torturing them, but mm-hmm. kind of egging them on. Yeah, the the children in his movies, there, there's nothing there's nothing cuddly about them. Mm-hmm. They're very, they're as inward-looking as the objects in his movie, but I don't find his movies bleak or depressing because Alice in particular puts me in mind of when I was a kid and your relationship to space and objects is different than it is when you're an adult. Mm -hmm. When you're a kid, your world is very limited a room in your house is like a whole a whole vista. Well, that's the whole idea of Alice. Mm. Like, in that opening scene, there's like a pan across a bunch of objects, and all those objects you see in that scene appear in the movie, yeah. because the, you know, the assumption is that, like, this adventure she's going on is in her own mind. That's right. <laughs> and, you know, if you go under your bed, mm-hmm. that can be the scariest thing in the world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. if, if you're of a certain age. Yeah. Or in your closet. A closet can be a whole mystical land of adventure. Or your teddy bear, or your action figures, or stuff like that. Those things have personalities. You project a lot onto them. It's like, I think of the movies as well as, like, hyper-detailed in a way that when you're a kid and you look at stuff, you wonder what these things could be. I'm thinking of, like, even mm-hmm. just VHS tapes, like, like you walk into a, a video store and you're like, what is all this stuff? Like, it can continue yeah. forever. There's a scene in Alice where she's going down an elevator and she's just passing all of these objects on the way down. Mm-hmm. And you just look at them and you're like, what is this stuff? What possible use could it have? Because it has like like monsters in formaldehyde and like nails sticking out of like rotten fruit. Well, like there's that scene where there's a tin can where she opens it with a can opener because the, the can seems to... Like, there's something inside that wants to get out, and she opens it, and she drops it, and a bunch of beetles come out. (laughs) And it's so gross and disgusting, but I don't know, I think when you're a kid, you look at a can... And think that probably there's something like that in there. Well, you invent stuff, Mm -hmm. and you scare yourself about what things could be. I also think of, like, the way that uh, Schwankmeyer and Alice, he returns to, like, you know, when you're a kid as well, is that something happens, and you feel that repetition, this annoying, like, this is broken. Like, every time she opens a drawer, the um, handle pops off, so she has to re in and like pull it open with her hand mm-hmm. and it happens over and over again this idea that what she really wants is in the drawer and it's hidden away but she has to break it to get inside mm-hmm. because conventional ways it's not made for kids to be able to access these things mm-hmm. so you know speaking of kids they also appear prominently or one does in little odic which is a uh, movie that Schrankmeyer made much later on, he made Faust after Alice, which is probably his most famous film. And Little Odic was... It's a year 2000. Yeah, year 2000. And this is one that actually melds live action. And the stop motion animation is not specifically like in the way in Alice that it is the background. It's just a character. Yeah, Alice is sort of like a Fantasia. It mm-hmm. feels a bit like a Terry Gilliam cartoon. Yeah. While Little Odic is like the real world. It has that... I mean, all of um, Schmeichmeyer's films have that look... We, you associate with like European films in the 70s like they're wet and they're grim and they're dirty <laughs> L- Little Odek which I like is I, f- I found a more difficult experience than Alice not what? only because it's a lot longer two hours come on Schreckmeyer 90 minutes that's your sweet <laughs> spot but also because it feels like an attack on the audience mm-hmm. like visually it has this as you said, very harsh, ugly imagery. It has this jangled, unpredictable editing style. So, like, you know, he'll do quick close-ups on things for seemingly no reason at all. Well, and the thing about Little Odic is that it is grounded in pure reality, in an actual real-life situation, and then this 
uncomfortable fantastical element comes into it. So it's a story about a uh, husband and wife. They want to have a kid and they can't. So the husband builds a little doll out of a tree bark. Out of a very mean-spirited joke, I guess. And he's like, look, I made you a baby. Uh And the wife goes, oh, my God, a baby. And she starts treating it like it's real. Mm -hmm. And the the husband's like, oh, my God, why why are you doing this? And then they have to go through a ruse where she pretends to be pregnant. And the husband the entire time is like, my wife is crazy, but I will continue to kind of humor her. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, this is a Schrankmeyer film. So the baby becomes real as a horrifying stop-motion creation. <laughs> yeah, it's like a basket case. <laughs> yeah, or, that's exactly what it is. Uh, or like eraser head a yeah, little bit. <laughs> it looks like the eraser head baby yeah. if it had more teeth and a bigger tongue. It's like, it is like a tree stump or something, mm-hmm. or a tree branch. Yeah. And all of the bark keeps going it's like it's like octopus legs but it's also screaming like a baby the entire time yeah what's interesting about it has orifices yeah what's interesting about little odic is that it starts in a very surreal place where you see like the husband having these hallucinations of there's babies Uh everywhere and he can't get one and then suddenly it becomes very real for like 40 Uh minutes and you're like what is this movie where am i it's very real but also it's so it's still so unpleasant it is and you know, I have a quote by Schwankmeyer where he says, My aim is to make surrealist documentaries. I want to show that our world is imaginative by nature. And Little Odic is full of scenes of, like, there's a scene where they make eggs and they're, they're sticking their tongue in the egg yolk and disgustingly eating it. Or, you know, scenes where they're slurping tea out of their cups mm. just with the sound really loud and a real intense close-up of their mouths as they're slurping this stuff. And it's full of stuff like that that makes the familiar grotesque and assaultive. Well, I think that, like, Schrankmeyer, when he hits that idea and that he can also take those fantastical elements, like Little Odic is this horrifying creation. How do you make that feel real or make it feel like you know, unpleasant when it's so distant from anything anybody could know. You have that scene where it eats her hair and her hair gets stuck. Mm-hmm. And it's that uncomfortable, like, ah, like, you know what it feels like if you get your hair caught in something. Yeah. And if it's this little monster, <laughs> that's just such a horrifying idea. Mm-hmm. And of course, this baby uh, is not all niceties. It eats human flesh, anybody that walks into the room. <laughs> oh, hey, how about the pedophilia in this movie? <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, played for laughs with a little bit of stop motion. Yeah, there's a uh, dirty old man neighbor. Mm-hmm. Uh, the movie is very, uh, movie has a lot of shots of baby's genitalia. <laughs> yes, it does. Especially little Odic's genitalia. Well, okay, there's that scene where the husband first presents his wife with this tree stump thing, mm. and it has a little old thing sticking out of it that I guess it looks like a dick. It looks like a dick. And she looks at it, and Schwenkmeyer keeps cutting back and forth between a real baby's body and this tree stump, <laughs> yeah. and it cuts to a real baby's dick. Yep. And the tree stump dick. I mean, that's just in case you didn't make the connection, I guess. I mean, that's the kind of experience this movie has yeah. to offer. I, you know, the movie you feel like it's going in one direction, where um, one of the little girls that lives in the building it figures out pretty quick that Odic is not a real baby mm-hmm. and maybe dangerous, but then it actually takes it from the perspective of probably what a real child would do is that instead of trying to warn people and, you know, destroy the baby, she wants to save it. Mm -hmm. And she's like, it's not 
its fault, even though it's growing to the size of like a giant human being and it's still continuing to eat people. We need to save it. And there's a metaphor there, even though I'm like, I'm not sure which one he's trying to make. I've read quotes from Frank Meyer where he's like, you know, it's whatever metaphor you want it to be. Does that have something to do with the uh, political situation in the Czech Probably, Republic? Probably, but I don't I, have I know that to... some of his films were political parables. Yeah, I mean, he was a very um, outspoken kind of political person in the way that he could articulate it through his art. I mean, Alice was the first feature film made in um, Czechoslovakia that wasn't supported by the state mm. and that he was able to do it because he had had so many successes with his short films and his art installations. I saw him in his interview say that his movies weren't that widely shown in Czechoslovakia. I would understand why. <laughs> but they would keep getting funded by mm. the higher ups because they kept winning prizes at festivals. So he was like, I was an, I was an export. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, the thing about Schrankmeyer is that when people get to know him, they understand exactly what something from him entails. Mm. But, you know, at the same time, his last feature film that he wanted to make, Insects, he had to fund on, I think Indiegogo, it was a crowdfunded project because oh he dark. could not get the uh, funding from the... Uh, the government or whatever body would usually pay for it. I mean, you know, watching, I watched a bunch of uh, Schrankmeyer features. Faust. Faust, and I think that Alice aside is that Schrankmeyer works best as a short subject filmmaker because he could take an idea, he can exploit that idea and he can move on. As a storyteller, I don't think that his interests lie in pacing or anything like that. So when you have a movie that's two hours long, like Little Odic, which kind of feels like it kind of runs out of steam. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. I mean, towards the end, it sort of feels like some of the same ideas are mm -hmm. being repeated. But then when you watch something like Meat Love, you're like, oh, okay, I get this. These two pieces of meat that are just having sex. I gotta say, Alice was a bit of a revelation for me this time. I saw half of it maybe 10 years ago. In film class? No, at Fantascope. Fantascope. Do you remember? I remember that, Fantascope. That, that's a very local reference. Oh, folks. yeah. The, only the select few would no, know about that. Only the select few. But yeah, I, I had to leave halfway through to go to something else, and I was never tempted to, really? to revisit it because I think I, I was already getting a little worn out by it. But when I watched Alice this time, I don't know, maybe in my old age, uh, we have so much CGI around us mm. that I'm I'm more compelled by very tactile, physical, special well, effects. Well, we were watching a Chinese blockbuster before we recorded this, and like you said, while it started, it's like all this friggin' stuff on screen, and it's like meh, the CGI creations of dragons fighting, and it doesn't mean anything. But then when you see like a stuffed rabbit kind of run around and it has a personality, you're like, ah, yes, that is true art. Well, because Schwankmeyer's secret is that he finds the the, the magic and the strangeness and the grossness in the everyday. Mm -hmm. With CGI, you can create anything. anything. And so, if and, you and can so make... you create nothing. Yeah, because if you can have anything, nothing has any meaning. I mean, in those CGI movies, they're never as spectacular as the fantasies you had as a child with, <laughs> with right. just your closet and under your bed and your stuffed animal. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, so as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. So our first letter goes, Hi, Justin and Will. Long time, first time here. Big fan of all installments under your podcasting umbrella. Shout out Loose Cannons. A while back, I listened to... This letter is written by Matthew Kumar. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A while back, I listened to 20 or so episodes of your back catalog on a flight from Japan to Europe. Oh, man. <laughs> Torture. Wow. 20 episodes. Uh, I, I don't even spend be... that much time with Will. <laughs> I 
wouldn't want to be with myself on a flight to Japan that long. Uh, to distract myself from a terrible headache. <laughs> Maybe we were causing that headache. And I'm still grateful for that. For some reason, the Sylvester Stallone episode has been seared into my brain. I don't remember what we said in that episode. That was so long ago. I can't remember it either, but like, I know what I think about Sylvester yeah, Stallone. Yeah, I know what we said. I live in Vienna and I'm doing my MA in Austrian studies, focus on literature, and would love to hear you talk about Austrian cinema. Arnold Schwarzenegger, I assume. <laughs> More specifically, I recommend Ulrich N Seidel. Yeah, that's right. Ulrich Seidel, yeah. A fascinating auteur working with non-professional actors, blurring the documentary fiction line and focusing on the underbelly of Austrian society. He's famous for his rigorous Wes Anderson-like compositions, but specializes in the abject depictions of sad, sometimes ridiculous people and their obsessions. He's been making features since the late 90s, Dog Days, having gotten the John Waters stamp of approval, but he really hit his Stride after 2012 with the Paradise Trilogy, as well as the In the Basement and Safari. We'd love to hear your thoughts, which would finally force me, a young academic with limited means, to become a Patreon member. Clemens. <laughs> we should maybe think about this, because uh, oh, I've oh, never heard of this filmmaker before. I I've heard of him, but he's a blind spot for mm. me, and I understand that his films are quite strange and difficult, so I would like to yeah, uh, that sounds try, like fun. try that out. Oh, love it. I can say that most people, if I meet them face-to-face, -face, and they enthusiastically talk about a movie that I I have never heard about i'm like well i gotta see this movie <laughs> like, it, it happens very rarely but when it does i get very excited nice. <laughs> the other thing is like i watched a movie called the nobodies recently because mm -hmm. someone recommended it on letterbox and i was like i never heard of this film before and i went and i watched it and it's amazing and it's fun to like share it with people and like you know you give the log line like the log line for that was what if it's splatter farm was interrupted every 15 minutes with like a documentary about the people that made it oh my and God. but it's like really sad and serious and it's about the two filmmakers committed suicide after they premiered the film at their local cinema and this is a fictional movie all of it is fictional even though that if you showed the movie was in the movie like you would assume it's from the 90s like they shot it on vhs it's very offensive but not in an offensive way like grindhouse in the way that like people who made splatter from like they didn't quite understand what they were making it is such a pitch perfect thing and they sold it to trauma and trauma put it on on DVD and nobody saw it. So what I love about that recommendation is your pitch for it starts with imagine if Splatter Farm <laughs> yeah. and like that works on me because I've seen Splatter yes. Farm but for <laughs> But this is for the people who like that. I wrote a review on Letterboxd and then like the director posted it on his Facebook oh. and I wrote like, you know, someone gives a really powerful uh, monologue at the end of the movie about suicide and what it means when somebody dies. And he like tagged the actor in it as well. And she was like, oh, thank you so much for posting that. Uh -huh. So, you know, it, what's funny is that we live in a world now that those little movies, like just one person writing, like if some nobody on Letterboxd, like they will see it and it will actually mean something to them. Mm -hmm. As opposed to, you know, in the 90s, you saw something. Well, what difference does it make? Like the filmmakers don't know. <laughs> so give a good review to Teddy Bomb for God's sake. <laughs> yeah. An impossible horror. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know people have watched it, and it only has five reviews on Amazon, um, Amazon Prime for some reason. <laughs> uh, so thank you very much for that letter, and that's a filmmaker that we're definitely going to have to check out. I have another letter here, and it goes, Dear Import Cinema Club, I love the show. I started listening after Will kept plugging it on Michael and Us. I got hooked, and now I'm a patron. Thank you very much. I don't think I plug it on Michael and Us that much, but I you guess, should it, plug it more. I guess it's come up. Yeah. yeah. You guys have introduced me to films I would have never heard of otherwise. 
otherwise. Mm, that's the goal. When the Martin Scorsese versus Marvel drama started, many were attacking his point that MCU movies were not movies. One person I follow uh, on Twitter... Uh, no, no, no. It said, we're not cinema. Okay, not cinema. Big distinction. One person I follow on Twitter said this would be like saying a book isn't a real book because you don't like it. I want to hear your takes on this. What makes a film a film? Is it really just a medium or is there more to it? What makes something art? And what makes something a mere commodity to be consumed? So I think... Uh, let's wait in. You know, people are waiting for our answer wait, on uh, this. who's the letter writer? Carlos. Carlos, okay. So I think the the key is that when he says cinema, he's not saying movies, he's not saying film, he says cinema, and I think he's using cinema synonymously with art. He's saying it, it's not art, I think, that yeah. if he said that... And that it's aspiring to the level... Like, he, he's talking about movies that aspire to the level of art, not to the level of sort of consumer products. Yes. In that case, I agree with Martin Scorsese. Sure. Uh, you like the Marvel movies more than I do. Yeah. And and I, I'm that's fine. Yeah. Love the Marvel movies. Is Disney an evil corporation? Yes. Yeah. Are they uh, monopolizing uh, what people talk about when it comes to movies? Yes. Yeah. So I feel like Martin Scorsese probably wouldn't have as big a beef with these movies if they were not dominating the culture. <laughs> I mean, he gets to make his movies, but I feel like he probably has meetings, even though he's in his 80s, and the executives are like, could you maybe... You know, give it a more of a superhero spin. Like, is there a different angle that we can approach it from? I mean, he had to go to Netflix to get funding for The Irishman. Mm -hmm. uh, and I mean, The Irishman's obviously a very difficult product in in any yeah. age. But I think it probably is harder for him to get certain movies made than it used to I be. I think the real question is, why are people so angry the fact that he said this? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, if you like the Marvel movies, why not just enjoy the Marvel and movies? And why not like, say, like, oh, Martin Scorsese disagrees with me. Okay, I don't have to agree with him. Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that for a lot of people, the Marvel movies are one of the main things they consume. And in fact, it's part of their identity. I'm going to say this, and this has been said many times before. When I was in high school, liking comic books was for nerds. Yeah, and, it's, <laughs> and, and it should go back to that, in yeah. my opinion. Uh, I like to point out that comic books have terrible sales. Yeah. They, have so, they sell less copies now than they have ever in their existence well the comic book movies uh, still carry around this chip on their shoulder that's carried over from the era when nerd culture was actually for nerds yeah so people talk about martin scorsese as if he's a gatekeeper they, they use that <laughs> martin word. scorsese oh, oh this gatekeeper wants to define what cinema is i'll tell you he's a gatekeeper disney ceo bob Iger. <laughs> he's the gatekeeper martin scorsese's restoring movies from africa and like <laughs> this is the classic problem is like you know you you have billions of dollars, but you still feel like you don't belong in the cool kid lot. It's like, what the fine. hell, man? You're doing fine. But I think a lot of people, maybe we're all guilty of this to some extent, define themselves by the things they like. Mm -hmm. And if your horizon of things you like is relatively limited, because Marvel movies are very accessible. Right, so uh, if someone dismisses it, someone that you view is like a great something, yeah. you feel that they're dismissing you as a person. Exactly. Your taste is bad and that you are not good, so get out of here. Yeah. And if you're yelling and arguing about it, yeah, your taste is probably bad. <laughs> and maybe yeah. you need to reflect on yourself a little bit. Yeah. I would say that for the people who are upset about Martin Scorsese should check out some of those directors he mentioned in his <laughs> New York Times op-ed. Why not pick up the... 
World Cinema box set that Martin Scorsese helped remaster. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, by all means, go see your Spider-Man movie. It's, yeah. It's, it's fine. There's your spawns and stuff, right? That's <laughs> yeah. a Marvel movie. Uh, Steel with Shaquille O'Neal. <laughs> That's a good film. Classic. Uh, the letter continues. Are you guys ever going to cover Soviet films? I fell in love with Soviet films after watching Ivan the Terrible. I love it if you guys did an episode on Sergei Eisenstein or Andre Tarkovsky or War and Peace. This has come up a few times in the podcast. It's usually me going, well, you want to do one of these guys? And it's like, sounds like a lot of work. And then I go, <laughs> yeah, it does sound like a lot of work. Actually, we should do Eisenstein. Soon. We should do Eisenstein. We haven't done any Russian filmmaker ever. So Tarkovsky, I think, is the one that I side at the most because I, I, I love Tarkovsky, but I find him very hard. You know what Tarkovsky is good to do is we do a Patreon episode. We pick one of his movies. Great. <laughs> And that's what we talk about. Okay, this is the thing. I think watching three to four Tarkovsky movies too much (laughs) might kill me. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Eisenstein, they're poppy, they're fun, right? October, strike. Yeah. We should probably do that in the near future. And uh, last question, are practical effects really better than CG? We touched about that in this episode. They are. Yeah, they are. No question. CG is great. You know, Martin Scorsese, uh, go look at the um, Wolf of Wall Street visual effects kind of demo reel that popped up a few years ago on the internet and it's like you would not know any of these things were cg graphics which Mm. is exactly how it should be used i agree (laughs) all right well thank you very much for that letter and this week on our patreon uh we're talking about speak of the devil we we saw the new martin scorsese movie that's right the irishman so that's what we talk about uh offering hot insights that you've seen nowhere else if you haven't seen the irishman I don't know, we do spoil the movie, which is based on real facts that if you search the name of the movie, will probably come up right at the top of Google. But we also spoil the artistry of the That's film. That's right. We, we say, yeah, can we spoil the artistry? Just ruin the... We, uh, we spoil the effect of it. That's right, uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, if you're in a big city, you've probably seen it already. Mm-hmm. But you, maybe you want to save this one for when it shows up on Netflix later this month. That's the one good thing about it being a Netflix movie is that in a few weeks, anybody can watch it as opposed to it being trapped in an art house somewhere. You know, it's pretty wild. We haven't done a Martin Scorsese episode. Uh, we have consciously not done a Martin. We have a Martin Scorsese uh, episode of the cards, but it is not what people think it's going to be. That's Remember right. we've talked about? Yeah. 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 Uh, Martin Scorsese is the one director that we've talked around the most probably than any other filmmaker yeah. where we've like picked some of his movies and included them in like actors or even subjects. That's right. Cause we did a De Niro episode. Yeah, we did do. And we talked about him in another context as well. We, I, well, we talked about him in the Jerry Lewis episode. <laughs> that's right. That was our very first. And I think he's appeared somewhere else. And I mean, I love Martin Scorsese. He's great. And he's great as a person. Yeah. So if you want to hear us talk about The Irishman, you can go to patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. Become a Patreon subscriber for $5 a month. Also, if you're a Patreon subscriber, I just started a kind of Important Cinema Club book club, which you can participate in on the Discord server we have, which is kind of a chat room. Um, This month's book is a Kim Jong-il production written by Paul Fisher, which if you haven't read it, I've read it already. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. It's about uh, directors that Kim Jong-il kidnapped and forced to make movies in North Korea, and one of those movies includes a Keiju film. So, (laughs) if you want to know more information about that, Join the Patreon, join the book club, join the discussion, and read the book by Paul Fisher. And I just got a tweet that Paul Fisher listens to this podcast. That's amazing. Which shocked me. For some reason, I thought it was like an old guy that had written like a bunch of books on like international subjects. But no, he's a young guy, film fan, wrote a bunch of scripts. Justin, what we have to come to terms with is the fact that we're made men now. We're we're tastemakers. People listen to us. I was like, do you think Jackie Chan listens? I don't think Jackie Chan does. (laughs) Yeah, okay. But Jackie... If you do, send us an email. In the early days, those first couple episodes when it was just you, me, and our mm. friends listening. None of my friends listened. 
None of my friends listened either. Who they was? Just... Li- people were listening. I don't know who. Who are those people? Your mom. Yeah, probably my mom. Yeah, that's right. My mom and dad do not listen. I can guarantee you of that. Well, uh, thank you so much for listening. And hopefully, uh, if you're interested in that subject or you want to read books and you know make internet friends, join us on the Discord. So next week we're going to continue our adventure with. What sounds like a bit of a cheat when we explain um, what kind of movies they are. They are wuxia films. That's Flying Swordsman films, which we usually associate with Hong Kong productions. That's right. But we're going to be talking about a Taiwanese filmmaker. And I'm going to be very specific with this episode is that I do want to talk about like Taiwan as a filmmaking place and their history and why the movies that they make are the way that they are. Taiwanese films often get like kind of grouped in with Hong Kong just because like the stars would move in between them. And we're going to be talking about a writer, director, star, singer called Pearl Chang. And she is one of the only people that I know who did all of that stuff in the 70s and 80s, or even now. I don't know anybody else working in Taiwanese or even Hong Kong cinema that's a woman and doing all of that stuff. Uh, She's most famous for making a kind of psychotronic classic called Wolf Devil Woman. Have you seen it before? Nope, never have. Uh, She also directed uh, three other films, uh, General Invincible, Matching Escort, and they all have very similar titles. There's also Miraculous Flower and other ones. She's a figure that not a lot of information is known about, but I think it's going to be fun just kind of jumping in. And, you know, I'm going to warn people that if they want to, like, go watch her films, they are not, like, classic Hong Kong films. They, like, feel completely different. So buckle up if you want to go watch that kind of stuff. Um, first of all, I do not recognize the sovereignty of Taiwan. Oh, no. I think uh, China is uh, one country. <laughs> I- I'm kidding, folks. No, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is brought to you by mainland China. Gosh. So hopefully um, that's going to be a fun discussion next week. We're going to be talking about Pearl Chang. So until then, my name is Dustin Glue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Speaking of China, Justin and I, before recording tonight, kicked back and uh, took in a little international art house cinema. <laughs> Russian cinema, to be specific. Well, Russian slash Chinese cinema. People are complaining we're not talking about Russian cinema. Here we go. Oh man, have we got one for you. <laughs> it goes under a couple of titles. One of them is V2. Yes. So it's the sequel to a movie called V. And V being a remake of the classic Russian film from, I think, the 60s? And that's spelled V-I-Y, folks. Yeah, that's right. And it's also known as Journey to China, colon, The Mystery of the Iron Man. And the reason we watched it is because uh, it has a couple of legends in the cast. Yep. Uh, uh, Jackie Chan. Rooker Hauer. Well, Rooker ha- the, late, <laughs> the late, great Rooker Hauer is in it. Not for long. No, maybe 20 seconds. But forget about Rooker Hauer. Rest in peace. It's got Jackie Chan and it's got Arnold Schwarzenegger. Rest in peace, Arnold Schwarzenegger's career. Did you see the numbers on Terminator Dark Fate? Not looking good. Nope. So, yeah, these two titans together. And this is a film that, like... Has it been delayed for five years now? I think we saw the trailer years ago. Years and years and years ago. Probably because it's a Russian production. <laughs> that maybe there's a lot of like complications around that. But when you watch the movie, it feels purely Chinese. Like, if you knew it was a Russian production, you'd be, okay, there's like Kozaks running around. But other than that, like, it feels like a Chinese director did it. So it opens with this CGI, I don't know what you would call it. It's like the camera swooping around various CGI worlds. Mm. Big kooky CG stuff while the narrator, who is Jackie Chan, fills you, it gives a big exposition dump, talks a lot about mythology, and and just in the first 20 seconds, my heart sank. It's like, oh my god, it's gonna be one of these movies. I like how you say that as if you're gonna like come back and say, but then it won me back because it was great. 
This is a late period Jackie Chan film. We all know what we're getting into. You were talking almost like a kidnapped victim <laughs> thinking longingly back at the time. You're like, remember Kung Fu Yoga? Remember how fun that was? I was saying that. <laughs> yeah. Kung Fu Yoga, which is an awful movie. I was fondly remembering <laughs> watching this film. I mean, this is a film just filled with just nonsense and not like fun like Whoa, this is crazy nonsense more like i don't even know what's going on anymore you were saying quite astutely that it feels like a godfrey ho movie <laughs> yes, where it it's a bunch of different unfinished movies that they stitch together in this frankenstein creation because <laughs> there's like giant dragons flying around there's like it's suddenly it's pirates of the caribbean for some reason there are three main threads i yes. think there's there are two separate russian guys who are protagonists yes the man in the iron mask and there's also Jason Fleming. Who was the star of the original film. Yes, who's an English actor that you've seen in a lot of Guy Ritchie films. And he just looks like an old Yeah, he just looks like British an old guy. guy, yeah. I mean, not charismatic. And then the third strand involves Jackie and Arnold. Yes, yeah, strand it, is a strong word. It's definitely the least important one. Mm -hmm. And the movie, uh, it, it's quite lumpy. Yes, um, two hours long. Yeah. Or was it seven hours long? I don't know. Are we talking about relative time We here? could still be watching it. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff. I mean, it's very garish looking. Lots of colors. I mean, do you remember in the mid-2000s when Chinese movies used to look good? Yeah, back when uh, Hero, Hero, all those Zhang Yimou pictures. Wong Kar Wai. Even stuff like when they were ripping off Hero, like The Banquet. I don't know if you remember that mainland yeah, Chinese yeah. production. Or even Chen Cage's The Promise, mm -hmm. which was not very good, Yeah, looked better than this. Yeah. I mean, at some point, we've talked about this before, Asian filmmakers or executives decided that the way movies should look is like as digital as possible with all the colors like boosted in the most ugly way imaginable. And that's what these movies look like. And it feels like a movie that's just built around, okay, here are a bunch of things that we have that mm -hmm. we can put in a movie or that test audiences are saying would be good in a movie. So... In Chinese blockbusters these days, what they love are little monster creatures. CGI monster creatures, yeah. CGI monster creatures are cute. They look like little Pikachus. Mm -hmm. And they uh, mug and do shenanigans. <laughs> yeah. And this movie has one of them. Mm -hmm. Or it has uh, Jackie Chan and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Jackie Chan never leaves the this set that one he's room, on. This one room, yeah. Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'm sure they built it in, like, the Jackie Chan stunt lab or something like that. Yeah. Stunt lab is also... You know, that's very generous considering the stunts in this movie. Yeah, so Jackie Chan is in this, like, uh, tower, and he's chained to the wall. <sighs> and they keep, like, every, like, setup where, like, mm, this is classic Jackie, and that they will never execute anything satisfying with this premise. Yeah, because he has these big, long chains that are attached to the wall, and I'm looking at it thinking, if Jackie were 25 years younger, yeah. he would do an amazing scene with those chains. Yeah, because the idea is that he's chained to the wall and chained to the other people as well, so when he moves, like, his right arm, the person besides him, like, left arm will move. So it's like a weird balancing act and nothing is if ever really done. this were 1985, yeah, he Nothing is done. ever done. There's a scene where, like, Jackie is, like, running up a... Uh, a shelf. A shelf. And, like, he even, like, opens the shelf and there's, like, weird stuff inside of it. And you're like, oh, man, if this was even, like, rush hour era Jackie, there'd be, like, a gag where, like, bad guys would come up and they'd be, like, playing with the shelves. And I'm sure Jackie probably pitched it that way. But, like, on the day they got there and they're like, Jackie's just gonna climb up it. 
because that's all that happens. There's no fighting on it. Well, there's a part where Jackie jumps from halfway up the shelf <laughs> yeah. and, and he lands <laughs> and on And then his Will feet. went, ooh, that was a high jump. <laughs> well, it does feel like a high jump because I know how many bones Jackie has broken. I know he's broken both those ankles. So maybe it's Probably like, really hurt Maybe Jackie is jump. like, it's for the fans. <laughs> like, yeah. they know how much it hurts. I mean, we keep going back to that gag in the super um, reel of um, Chinese Zodiac. Oh my God. Where Jackie is just like, it's a simple gag where he jumps through a picture frame and he kicks somebody, but the picture frame breaks, so he lands on the side of the picture frame. He, he lands on his back. back. And it's like, mm, it's not that high, probably three feet, I would say, but oh man, it's like 10 minutes of Jackie being like, oh! He looks in such pain, yeah. the whole crew has to gather around and lift him up. Or how about that, that one stunt in Kung Fu Yoga. Yeah. Which was, <laughs> you know, I said this like a hundred times. It's so funny to me. Yeah. It was the big... It was on the trailer! <laughs> it was the big trailer stunt where there are two of those big luggage c- container Yeah, yeah, things. yeah. At a hotel, like, coming towards each other. And he jumps through them. Yeah, and you see it from, like, three different angles. <laughs> <laughs> Stanley Tong, who directed that film, was like, look at this, man! You know what? I could do that stunt. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Jackie, he doesn't need to make movies anymore, right? Clearly some part of him does. Yeah, I mean, maybe he can't even imagine a world where he does. I think that the difference between Jackie and, like, other filmmakers is, like, you watch that making of documentary of Chinese Zodiac, and he obviously cares about these movies. Yeah. Like, he wants to make as good a movie as he can, but maybe what a good movie is just, you know, not in his hands. What should I give this movie on Letterboxd? Two stars. Uh, I'm leaning towards one and a half. Nah, one and a half is like movies that like offend me. I'm saving that for the next Jackie pro-China film, I'm sure. 